2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Now in case you didn't know it, our world is in chaos today, folks. We live in chaotic times. The title of this message is Stability in an Unstable World. Stability, and how do you have stability in an unstable world? You know, despite man's best efforts, we still hear of wars and rumors of wars. But just go to Matthew chapter 24. What did Jesus say about that? That's normal. That's going to happen. We live in that time when we continue to hear about wars and rumors of wars. The coronavirus, especially COVID-19, has many, many people living in constant fear. Many afraid to get out of their homes. Many afraid to get into public. And so remember what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 7. He said in those last days, there will be pestilences. And that's what a disease is, is a pestilence in diverse places. See, the things that are happening around us should not cause us to question the Bible. The things that happen around us should just confirm that the Bible is the Word of God. Amen. It is true. And what it says is going to come to pass is going to come to pass. Our nation is in crisis. We are a divided nation. We are divided politically. We are divided racially. We are divided ideologically. We are divided economically and in so many other ways. There's a great deal of anxiety among people, even our people, that our religious liberty is under attack today as it has not been under attack since the days of our founding fathers. And by the way, if you didn't realize that, in the early days of this nation, religious liberty was under attack. And that's why we have what we call the Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments to the Constitution. That's one of the reasons is for our religious liberty. Same-sex marriage is legal, and Christian businessmen who will not go along with that have been sued and have been financially ruined because they want to stand for the morals and the convictions of God's Word. Something that happened many years ago, I debated whether to share this or not, but many years ago in Little Rock, Arkansas, there was an atheist standing on a street corner sharing or trying to share his devilish demonic poison with people. The man was arrested for being out there doing that and jailed. But a Baptist preacher, Dr. Ben Bogard, went up and bailed the man out of jail. He defended the man's liberty to be able to do that. He didn't agree with what the man said, but he defended his liberty and his freedom to be able to get out and do that. Somehow this phrase has entered into that story, that, and it's true, the same laws that were used to imprison him could be used to imprison me. And so he paid his bail. But you know what's happening today? Those who believe that God-denying doctrine of atheism, 
would like to deny us our right to share God's word in various places and to preach God's word to people. One might ask, well, with all that's going on today, how can we find peace and how can we find stability in this world? Just think about this. See, we think we've got it bad. But think about Paul's day when he wrote these words to this church at Thessalonica. And Paul and his fellow laborers had it a lot worse than we have it today. First of all, the Roman Empire was opposed to Paul and his fellow laborers because they said, Jesus is Lord. Well, that's not what you said in the Roman Empire. You were supposed to say Caesar is Lord. But they would say, Jesus is Lord and declare him to be Lord. They were being persecuted and they were being chased from place to place by the non-believing Jews who wanted to see them put out of business. They were imprisoned and some were executed because of their beliefs in the Lord Jesus Christ and being faithful to him. And many even lost their jobs that had been pagans. They were saved and they could no longer work in the trade guilds that made the statues for idol worship. And so they lost their jobs. And then someone had written a false letter signing Paul's name to it saying, well, Jesus has already come. He's already returned. And of course, Paul wrote back. He said Jesus hadn't returned. He said, but when he does, he's going to have the final victory. And he will. But what these are encouraged to do in these verses that we read, until the time that Jesus Christ returns, they were encouraged to stand firm in an ungodly and an unstable world. Guess what we're encouraged to do by the word of God today? Stand firm. Stand firm in an ungodly world and an unstable world. And this text is a part of Paul's instruction to those believers. And he tells them to do two things, stand firm and to hold on to the word of God. You know, I've thought about making this a brief series of how to have stability in an unstable world. The first message is this one, and the second one is just hanging on to and, and trusting and believing the word of God. Knowing the truth can give you peace in a chaotic and an unstable time. Amen. I sort of decided to include a little, if maybe you can see it on the screen, maybe not, a Peanuts comic, comic strip. I don't know if you can read that. Lucy says this. It's really, it's been raining for a while. She says, it's really raining. What if it floods the whole world? And Lioness says, it will never do that. I don't know what Charles Schultz was, what he professed to be, but he knew the Bible, at least parts of it, because Linus says this, in the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that it would never happen again, and the sign of that promise is the rainbow. And Lucy said, you've taken a great load off my mind, and Linus says, sound theology has a way of doing that. <laughs> sound theology has a way of taking a load off our minds. And so we get into the Word of God, we understand the Word of God, we apply the Word of God, we live the Word of God, and we hold on and we stand firm in these last days. Today we need to get a bulldog grip on the truth and never let it go. So I know what I am. I told the Sunday school class, I'm a sinner saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. But I also know what I believe in, it's the Word of God. And I know, I don't just believe, I know that what's going to come out of this pulpit and what's going to come out of this church is the truth from God's Word. I have problems using that phrase, the truth of the Word of God. It may sound like maybe there's some in there that's not true. But all of it's true. So I like to talk about the truth that is the Word of God. God's Word, which is truth. 
And I believe it is, I know it is, and we see it just being fulfilled every day. So Paul reminds us of some things, and we're going to mention four unshakable truths that will give us stability in these last days. And here's the first one, God loves me unconditionally. God loves you unconditionally. Look at verse 13, we're bound to give thanks all the way to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord. Now I think the greatest truth of the Bible is this, God exists. Okay, I just think that's the greatest knowledge that we can have. There is a God in heaven. See, the Bible doesn't try to prove God's existence. The Bible just says God is and he created everything. And I sort of want to say after that, now deal with that, okay? God is and God created everything. And according to the 14th Psalm and the 53rd Psalm, the first verse in each, if you don't believe in God, my friend, you are a fool, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. By the way, you know that's where it begins. The problems begin in the heart. And the fool first says in his heart, and then he says with his mouth that there is no God. But just as important as teaching the existence of God is the teaching, I love this, that God has chosen to love us. God has chosen to love his creation, and that's what Paul's telling these that he's writing to there in Thessalonica, and he reminds them of the unconditional love of God. And I'm glad God loves unconditionally. We're going to talk about that in a moment also. But I'm thankful for the unconditional love of God. First of all, he calls them brethren. That's the word Adelphoi. But then he calls them, he says that they are loved and he used the word there, a form of the word agape, which talks about a self-sacrificing love. You know what he's saying? God loves you. God loves you unconditionally. And God loves you with a self-sacrificing love. Now, if that won't give you some stability in an unstable world, I don't know what can. See, much of what is called love today is conditional, isn't it, among human beings. I'll love you if you'll love me. I'll like you if you like me. We'll get along if we agree. But God just says, I love you unconditionally, I love you. In fact, if you think about it, sometimes some of God's people are unlovable, aren't they? So we can do some unlovable things. We can be unlovable toward one another. And you know what? God loves us unconditionally. He loves us in spite of our actions, our attitudes, and our unlovability. God just loves us. You say, well, why does God love you? Why does God love me? First John chapter 4. Years ago, I sang a little song from these verses. First John chapter 4. We may have to learn that one, Brother Rick. First John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God. For God is love. If you don't have love in your heart and you can't love... You need to check your salvation. Amen. You need to accept Jesus Christ as Savior and you need to start loving with the love of God. Think about this. God knows every thought you and I have ever had. God knows every sin that you and I have ever committed. God knows every attitude that we hold. God knows absolutely everything about us. And here's what's amazing. He still loves me. Amen. And he still loves you. Isn't that amazing? God loves us. It's an unconditional love. Here's what he told Israel. He said, I, in Jeremiah 31, 3, he said, Yea, I have loved thee 
with an everlasting love. See, God's love is not going to end. He loves us unconditionally, and He loves us with an unending love. God's love is never going to end. And you know the Bible's full of examples of God's love? In Luke chapter 15, verses 4 and 5, His love is demonstrated by the shepherd who loves that one lost sheep so much that he leaves the ninety and nine, and he goes out to find that one sheep, and he brings him back into the fold. In Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32, think about this. God loves with this kind of love. There's where we have the account of the prodigal son. You know, the young boy that went to his daddy and he said, I want my inheritance and I want it now, right? And so he got it. And he went off into the far country and he wasted everything that he had, the scripture said, with riotous living. I mean, it was probably party time while he had the money, but when the money ran out, so did the friends. That's a good lesson for you young people. The, the people who are your friends are the ones who will stick close to you even when you don't have any money, okay? Some of the best friends you've got are your parents, by the way. I'll just throw that in for free. But his money ran out, he's in the, he's in the pig pen. And the scripture says he'd have gladly eaten the husks off the corn that the farmer put in there with the pigs. And then he remembered all that he had back home. And he said, I'll go to my father. I like what the scripture says. It says he came to himself. <laughs> Sometimes we just need to come to ourselves, don't we? He came to himself. He said, I'm going to go back home. And when he went back home, what did he find? There's daddy. There's daddy with his arms open. There's daddy waiting. And he puts the robe on and the ring on his finger. And they have a party because the son who was lost has come home. Listen, if you strayed from God... God's waiting for you to come home. He's waiting with open arms. He loves you. And then the final example that I want to mention is the book of Hosea. If you're familiar with the book of Hosea, here's the example that is used there. God's love is like this. It's like that of a faithful husband whose wife deserts him. She becomes a harlot. She ends up being sold into slavery. He gathers every bit of money he can and he goes and buys her out of slavery, and he brings her back home, and he restores her to her purity and to dignity. Folks, that's the love of God. God loves me. God loves you unconditionally. Here's another one. God chose me before I ever believed. Now, this is not Calvinism. I'm going to explain it in a moment. But you look down there at verse 13, chapter 2, verse 13, and he says this, We're bound to give thanks all the way to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Now, we need to take a moment to understand three words, foreknowledge, election, and predestination. And I believe in foreknowledge, and I believe in election, and I believe in predestination, not the way John Calvin did, but the way the Bible teaches it. You know what foreknowledge is? Foreknowledge is just a knowing beforehand. A knowing be before it happens. Well, who knows about anything before it happens? God does. God knows everything. God knows what has happened. God knows what is happening. And God knows what's going to happen tomorrow, next week, next month, 20 years from now, 100 years, 1,000 years from now. God knows what's going to happen. Now that doesn't mean just because he knows it's going to happen that he makes it happen, all right? That's what Calvinism teaches. 
But just he just knows what's going to happen. That's the knowledge of God. See, God knew I was going to be born long before I was ever thought of. God knew you were going to be born before, long before you ever thought. And then, not only did he know we were going to be born, God knew that one day we were going to accept Jesus Christ as personal Savior. That's foreknowledge. Well, what's election? Well, listen to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. He calls believers elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 says, According as he hath chosen us in him. Who's the him? It's Christ. See, God has chosen us in Christ. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now, what we have two words, elect and chosen, right there. You know what they mean? They mean exactly what they say. You know what you do when you elect somebody to an office? You choose them. That word elect also has the idea of preferred. And chosen just means what chosen means. Selected out, chosen out. And here's what God did. See, the scripture says he has chosen us in Christ. And here's what God said. He said, everybody who will accept Jesus, I'll choose them to be mine. If they will accept my son, if they will accept the price that I'm going to pay, when they accept that price, they're going to be born into my family. That's born again. They're going to be adopted into my family because we are adopted children also. And so God just chose everybody who would choose Christ. And so before the foundation of the world, God had already said, anybody who will accept Christ will be mine. And then it says in Romans 8, 29, for whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate, but read the rest of that verse, to be conformed to the image of his dear son. See, a lot of people get hung up on predestination. They think predestination means that God's laid everything out. What's going to happen is going to happen. You can't do anything to change it. It's just going to happen. That's not biblical predestination. In fact, the word predestinate in the Word of God has more of the idea of what we are predestinated to than who is predestinated. And what does the Scripture... Predestinate, uh, predestinate just means to determine, to mark out beforehand. Well, what did God predestinate? Go back to Romans eight twenty nine. For whom he did foreknow, say he knew us that we were going to be saved, so he predestinated something, and what is that? He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his dear son. He said, those who accept my son, I choose to be mine. And when I choose them, I want them to be just like Jesus. See, God only had one son, Jesus Christ. He is the only begotten son of God. But he loved him so much, he wanted more like him. And so he just chose those who would choose him and predestinated us to be like Jesus. God's desire for your life, God's desire for my life, is that we would be like Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He was saying, I want to be like Jesus. That's what God wants me to be. I want to be just like Jesus Christ. And that idea, I love that idea of press toward the mark. It's a, a runner's term. And I used to run. And I know what finish line kick is. You train so when you're in that last quarter of a mile, that last tenth of a mile, whatever you need, you can just reach down inside and you can pull up some more strength, some more power, some more energy, and you can kick it in. I was running a race one day and Six mile race, we we're near the finish line, and I could hear somebody breathing over my shoulder. And I thought, you ain't beating me. 
and reached down deep inside from the training that I'd done. And I went across the finish line before he did. But see, pressing toward the mark. Not coasting in. You run through the finish line. You don't just come up to the finish line and saunter in to walk and you run through. I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. God knows who will be saved and who won't be saved. That's foreknowledge. God shows on all who will accept his gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. That's election. And God has decided that and predetermined that all those who are saved, who are his children, should be like Jesus. That is predestination conformed to the image of his dear son. God knew me and chose me before I was saved. So again, God knew that one day we'd be born, knew that one day we would be saved and has chosen us. But in all of this, he gave us a choice. God has chosen you. God has chosen all who would accept Christ as his. But he gives them, we call this the issue of your will, if you're unsaved and God's convicting you of your need to be saved, here's the issue of your will. You can choose to be saved or you can choose to die lost. The term that we use is, the theological term that is often used, is that mankind, God made man a free moral agent. That just means he gave them the opportunity of choice. When a person is saved, three factors are at work. First of all, the word of God. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The best way to witness this to somebody is by the word of God. Share the scripture and share your testimony. Leave it with them. I always like to point this out. God did not call us to convict hearts. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Amen. We get all caught up in wanting to convict somebody of their lost condition. No, you share the word of God and you tell them your testimony. Leave it with them and let the Holy Spirit work on them. He can do a lot better job than you and I can, can't he? And so the word of God... But then there is what I was just talking about, the work of the Spirit, conviction. And it doesn't take 30 minutes. I've shared this before. It doesn't take 30 minutes to witness to somebody. See, I can tell you, I can witness right here in just a moment or two. I was a lost sinner. All of sin comes short of the glory of God. I was on my way to hell for the wages of sin is death. Okay, separation. But God loved me and sent Jesus to die on the cross. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And God saved me when I turned to him in repentance and asked him to save me and trusted what Jesus did on the cross. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Boom. What, less than two minutes? You can leave that with somebody and let the Holy Spirit work on them. Live a godly life before them. But let them hear how God saved you. And here's the third thing that's at work in salvation. It's the will of the person. Their decision. We can't force anybody into being saved. God won't force anybody into being saved. God wants everybody to be saved. But he lets people choose for themselves. And you will either accept Christ or you reject him. And that's the choices that you have. You can't be neutral about Jesus. You can't say, well, I, you know, Jesus, I don't know. I don't know whether I want to take him or leave him. You can't do that. You've got to either accept him or reject him. And if you don't accept him, you know what you're doing? You're rejecting him. God loves me. God loves me with an unconditional love. God knew me and loved me before I was ever born. God gives me hope for the future. Look at verse 16. 
Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. We, a lot of times, and this is my, one of my favorite words from the Bible, we use the word hope a lot of times and we're talking about something that if, that's iffy. It may or may not happen. We hope it will happen. I hope I have a good day today. Young people may say, I hope I pass that test. Or we may go to the doctor and say, I hope I get good results from this test. I'll tell you the best way, instead of just hoping to pass a test, young people study for it. But we know what the word that's translated hope actually means. Glad expectation to anticipate with pleasure. It's a word of confidence. When the Bible talks about hope, it is a confident thing. Somebody put up this acrostic and I liked it and I thought I'd share this with you. Have only positive expectations. That's what hope is. Have only positive expectations. Listen to what God said through Peter over in 1 Peter, the first chapter, verses 3 through 5. Listen to this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now I'm going to pause for just a moment because that word lively, you know what it means? Living hope. Living hope. We don't have a dead hope. Our hope's not in a dead Savior. Our hope is in a living Savior. God has begotten us to a living hope, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I have hope. In a world that is unstable, in a world that is corrupt, in a world that is falling apart, I got hope, folks. And so do you. We have glad expectation. And this hope is described in the word of God as our anchor. Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. Listen to what it says about this, this hope that we have. Hebrews chapter 6. Look at verse 18 there. That by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie. And we know that. We might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Sure talks about a certainty. Steadfast talks about stability. I read this the other day. I hope I can remember it just right. In Bible days, you know, the art of seafaring wasn't as advanced as it is today. And in those days, there were problems with ships entering the harbor, so they would take a much smaller boat. See, the anchor was usually a piece of stone with a hole in the middle of it they'd tie a rope to. But they would take the smaller boat, drop, lower the anchor down into the boat, and a man would row into the harbor, find a safe place for the ship to moor, would drop that anchor, and the line was attached to the ship, and with a pulley, they would pull the ship toward where the anchor had been dropped so they could go safely into the harbor. The Word of God, the promise of God, this hope that we have, the Word of God says, is our anchor. It draws us into the very presence of God. You know, in the temple, in Bible days, there was a very special place called the Holy of Holies. Nobody could go in there except the high priest. He could only go in there once a year to make atonement 
for the sins of the people. But when Jesus was crucified, the curtain between the temple and the Holy of Holies was torn from the top down. Not from the bottom up, from the top down. And what was happening is with the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, the way was being opened to God. First Timothy chapter 2 verse 5. But there's one God and one mediator between men and God, the man Christ Jesus. You don't have to come to your pastor to go to God. You don't have to come to your pastor and confess your sins to your pastor to get forgiveness. You can go to God. You go to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. I love Hebrews chapter 4 verses 15 and 16. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Very simply he's not unsympathetic toward us but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Listen to what it says. Let us therefore come where? Come boldly under the throne of grace, or that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The way has been opened to God through Jesus Christ. We have hope because of the sacrifice of Jesus. We have hope because of the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. We have hope because in John 14, Jesus told the disciples, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. First Thessalonians chapter 4, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. Jesus is coming back. I don't know when. Maybe today, maybe tomorrow, next week. Jesus is coming back. During World War II, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, Ruth K. Jones wrote these words, and we're familiar with them. In times like these, you need a Savior. In times like these, you need an anchor. Be very sure. Be very sure your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. This rock is Jesus. Yes, he's the one. This rock is Jesus, the only one. Be very sure, be very sure your anchor holds and grips a solid rock. Folks, Jesus is our rock. Jesus is our anchor. Jesus Christ is our hope. Glad expectation. And finally, God gives me the strength to stand firm. Go back and look at verse 17. That he would comfort your hearts and establish or establish you in every good word and work comfort. I love that word. It, you know what the word there is? It's paracalio. And the reason I mention that word, I don't usually mention the words from the language, but that word is the word for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's the comforter, Jesus said in the book of John. But said, God will comfort your heart through the Holy Spirit. And then he will establish, which means to set fast, to turn resolutely in a certain direction to confirm. Where are we comforted? He were comforted and encouraged in our hearts. Your heart is the seat and center of your will and your desire. Do you realize that when we are defeated, most of the time, we are defeated, first of all, in our hearts, in our minds? The scripture says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. If you're defeated in your heart, you're defeated. In fact, many times instead of Israel or their enemies in a time of battle, it says their hearts melted. Just before it said they lost, it said their hearts melted. You get your heart melted. If you're defeated in heart, defeated in mind, defeated in the center and seat of your will, then you're defeated. But the Word of God says we can have comfort in our hearts. Oh yes, it looks bad. 
It looks unstable. Aaron ran a race yesterday, and it had to do with aiding in the prevention of teen suicides. Do you realize how many teenagers today look at this hopeless world and they decide just to end their lives? It's sad. We're losing a great part of the next generation because they decide to take their own lives. Because they see there is no hope or they believe there is no hope. But there is hope. And we need to stand fast on that hope. Ephesians 6.10 says, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. And then it talks about putting on the whole armor of God of getting dressed up for the battle. And you know what the point of the battle is? To stand our ground. You notice in all of that armor that's mentioned there in the sixth chapter of Ephesians, there's nothing to cover the backside. Don't turn around and run. Don't dig those hot nail boots in. Dig those shoes in and do not be moved. Now, I'm, I'm not afraid that many of us who are older are not going to be moved. But folks, I get concerned about our young people because the world is dangling things out there in front of them that are attractive to the flesh. We need to establish this in them. Don't be moved off of the truth. The Christian life does not start with action. It starts with conviction. It starts in the firm belief that this is the divinely inspired and inerrant word of God. It starts with the understanding there is a God in heaven. It starts with the understanding that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It starts with the understanding that God loved you enough that he wanted you to be saved and he sent Jesus to die on the cross. That's the way the Christian life begins. Amen. It ought to move us to action as the children of God, standing for the truth. We have solid truths to stand upon. Our society right now is redefining truth. Our society right now is redefining morality. We are not to be moved off of the truth. I'll say again, I've said a lot of times, if God's word said it was sin in the Old Testament, God's saying it's sin in the New Testament, and God's saying it's sin today. I don't care what society says. I don't care what CNN, MSNBC, Fox, or whoever, I don't care what they say. If God says it, we better listen to it because it's true. There's a song we sing also that on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is shifting sand. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I mean, we could just come up with these songs and mention these songs over and over and over. But we cannot stand in our own strength God is our strength. You know, we may think the song Jesus Loves Me is just for little children and is just about little children, but it's about God's little children. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he's strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Psalm 18, and we're wrapping up with these verses. Verse 32 says this, It is God that girdeth me with strength and maketh my way perfect. Verse 33, He maketh my feet like hinds feet and setteth me upon my high places. And verse 36 says, Thou hast enlarged my steps under me that my feet 
did not slip. You know what an ibex is? I-B-E-X, ibex. It's a deer. It's a small deer, uh, probably referred to uh, by the hind here. And that deer can climb mountains. And that deer can stand on legends. Here's what they, they do. They look where to put their front feet. And then as they step, they move their back feet right up to where their front feet were. And they go again. And they're able to climb these mountains and stand on these ledges. Well, see, God wants us to do something similar. He wants us to put our feet where his feet are. God wants us to follow him and in his steps. And that's how we can be established in every good word and every good work. We're in the middle of a cultural storm today, folks, in our nation and in our world. Things are changing so rapidly around us, we almost can't keep up, can we? I mean, one day this is popular, and the next day, you know, I'll just use this quick illustration. There are words today that if I said them today, that I know what they meant back years ago, but they don't mean that anymore. You can make some people gasp by using words that, that you just thought were normal words today. It's just changing so rapidly. Churches that could once be counted upon to stand for the truth are forsaking it for just a number or two more on an attendance record. And in America, we are living in what some call the post-Christian age. We need to latch on to these truths today that presented this morning in a greater way than we've ever latched on to them before. God loves me and God loves you unconditionally. God chose us before we ever believed because God knew us before we were ever born. God gives us glad expectation for the future and God gives us the strength that we need to stand. You know, I know we've got some folks sick today, but we also just have some folks who, for whatever reason, said, mm, not today. I have other things to do. I have better things to do. You can't find anything better to do than come to worship God, by the way. Amen. But some people will think that. And they'll just go do whatever they want to do. They're being captured by this world and captivated by this world, folks. We don't need to let the world get any more of God's people. Don't be a casualty. Don't be a number. Be faithful to the God who loves you and to the God who gave himself for you. Remember these four things that I've mentioned this morning. And when you get up and read the newspaper in the morning, you see the headlines or you turn on the news on television or the radio or whatever tonight. And, or you go online, you know, and you pull it up and, and you just oh, it looks so bad. It looks so terrible. Just think, God loves me. <laughs> and God's going to get me out of all of this one of these days. Whether I go by the undertaker or the upper taker, and I prefer to go by the upper taker. Pastor to me one time, he said, I don't want to go by the cloud. I want to go by the cloud. So, you know, he's looking forward to Jesus coming. But God's going to remove us from this place one of these days, and we're going to go into his presence and enjoy his presence for all eternity.